This is The Weekly for Friday, September 27th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. On Capitol Hill, congressional Democrats have begun the impeachment process against President Trump. If it comes to a floor vote, the 45th president could be the third U.S. president to be impeached by the House of Representatives. At this historic point, what happens next? How will this political process unfold? And ultimately, what should we look for? We sit down with Elaine K. Mark. She is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And she's also the author of the book, Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again. She joins us to discuss this moment, the precedent, and potential constitutional path forward around the impeachment debate. Elaine K. Mark, what a week. Wow, what a week is right. I wonder if you could, as somebody who has been in this town for a long time, seen a lot, put this week into perspective. Where are we? We are approximately where we were in the spring of 1974. That is the closest approximation. Because in the spring of 1974, what had been uncovered was the fact that there was a taping system in the White House, Richard Nixon's White House. And until that revelation, there had been lots and lots of smoke, but nothing implicating the President of the United States in a major scandal involving abuse of power. Once it was revealed that there was a taping system, and once the Supreme Court ordered that system turned over to the United States Congress, uh, there was a rapid set of um, movements towards impeachment of Richard Nixon, which culminated not with an impeachment vote, but with three United States senators walking into the Oval Office, led by the late, great Barry Goldwater, um, telling the president of the United States that he would lose an impeachment vote and he would lose a he would not be acquitted he would be convicted in the Senate because the Republicans had abandoned him so this was this unfolded and unraveled rather quickly um, in 1974 and I think we could be at the beginning of a similar, period in history, although I would not necessarily predict the same outcome. And clearly one of the very big differences in 2019, the media, social media, and in particular Fox News. And we're seeing it already with Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, and others on the Fox News networks. Well, I think that's right. But, you know, I think we often overestimate the rapidity Uh, and the impact of social media. I mean, what clearly happened in 1974 was that there were people of the president's own party who came to the conclusion that the president had done something that seriously violated his constitutional duties. And that was involved in the abuse of power. And what the president had done back in 1974 was order the CIA to or or attempt to order the CIA to tell the FBI to back off the Watergate investigation, which was clearly an abuse of power. And what you have here is looks very much like a similar abuse of power, 
And this time, the big difference is there's no waiting to see what the president knew and when he knew it. We we have that. We know what the president did. There is no question about what he did. And you have an apparatus that's trying to con- that's going to try and convince America, Fox News, that it's actually okay for an American president to use the powers of his office and the powers of the United States government and $391 million in military aid to convince the leader of another country to interfere in an election on behalf of that president. Now, um, the facts, you know, in Watergate, there, it, it took a long time to for the facts to unravel. Here, we've got a pretty cut-and-dried factual situation. And I think the question before us is, will the people bringing impeachment be able to make the case to the American public that what the president did here was a serious violation of his constitutional duties. And remember, people do change their minds. Um, And if a couple of United States senators, Republican conservative senators, start to think about this and talk about this, uh, you could even eventually see Fox News changing its mind. And yet one of the lessons from Watergate is that it had to be bipartisan. That's what the founders really wanted in the Constitution, a two-thirds majority in the Senate so that you don't have a simple majority forcing any president out of the White House. That's exactly right. And one of the reasons that Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and Mr. Clyburn, all in the House leadership, have so steadfastly resisted impeachment up until this point is that they clearly looked across the aisle or across the <laughs> across the Capitol and said, no, we can't win a conviction. And so we're not going to move ahead until we think we can get a conviction in the Senate. What changed in just rapidly in the last week was that the report of this uh, whistleblower had very big constitutional implications and was directly tied to an action by the president himself. Remember that all the Russia stuff, and it it involved, you know, and ended up in indictments and convictions of many of his aides, um, was all about the aides, but never really directly touched the president himself. Here we have an abuse of power that is involving the president himself. And that, is, that makes it fundamentally different from the Russia stuff. And I think this said to uh, certainly Pelosi and certainly to the House members that, okay, they couldn't ignore this. All right, this, was, this was something that was major enough that even if it ended up hurting them politically, which it could, uh, they had a constitutional duty to go forward with this. So based on what you know, what you've read in the whistleblower report and the testimony this week, and clearly a lot more questions that need to be answered, you feel this does rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Yes, I think that of all the charges that have been made against this president, from emoluments to obstruction of justice, um, this one is the most clear-cut and the most powerful one because of his his direct involvement and his direct involvement in using U.S. government um, resources and prerogatives for his political, personal political advantage.
We're talking with Elaine Kmark from the Brookings Institution, also the author of the book, Why Presidents Fail. And where would you put Donald Trump in the category of that book title? Oh, I think there's no doubt that he's been a failure as a president, with a, with a couple of exceptions. He has managed to get a uh, the uh, court uh, packed with very conservative just, justices. He's done. He's pursued that. He's done it in conjunction with the Republican Senate, and I think that's going to be a lasting legacy. He did get a big tax bill. Um, and I think some of that tax bill will get rolled back when the Democrats come back into power, but I think that was an achievement. Um, in terms of immigration, he hasn't actually solved anything. He came in complaining about it. There were various opportunities to get bipartisan legislation built around a compromise on DACA, the the uh, young people who are here through no fault of their own and who aren't citizens. Um, so there were a variety of ways that he could have dealt with immigration. Instead, he has used it to fan the flames of hatred and racism rather than engage in a constructive dialogue about how we redo our immigration laws and how we prevent the crises at the border. So it's interesting on immigration, which clearly he thinks is his great political ace in the hole. um, Frankly, he he has failed to achieve much of anything with it. And if anything, the situation at the border is much worse than it was when he came into office. So you you can't say that that, that one of his big um, political points, you can't say that he was particularly successful at dealing with it. And going back to the whistleblower report, which, by the way, is available on our homepage at cspan.org, you have a theory in terms of who possibly might be behind this. Yeah, I think you have to look at the timing of everything. Um, This phone call occurred under the previous or the most recent National Security Advisor, John Bolton. July 25th. July 25th. He then was summarily fired um, about a little bit more than a month afterwards by the president in the president's typical um, humiliating way by by tweet <laughs> okay and um, you and we know that he had a much more conventional approach even though it was slightly um, more conservative or, or uh, more uh, hawkish than many. He had, but he had much more of a conventional approach to American foreign policy, particularly as regards Russia and Ukraine. And so it, it is just interesting to speculate that um, this happened after his leaving the White House. And maybe he had friends uh, in the government that wanted this known. And I wonder if this would have been known had he remained in the White House. The other factor that complicates in trying to cover this is what we're hearing from the from the president, from Republicans, and that is allegations that the former vice president's son, Hunter, was involved serving on the board of a gas company in Ukraine and the role of the prosecutor that the vice president in 2016 forced out. And it gets confusing because the prosecutor, as I understand, was forced out by the foreign policy community in the U.S. and our allies across Europe, that they thought that this guy was corrupt and that it had nothing to do with the gas company. 
but can you clarify that? No, I don't think anybody can clarify that. I think this, I, I, I have been to Kiev once. I have had a little bit to do with Ukrainians. And I can say that what most people, I think, think is that the country has a lot of problems around corruption. They are constantly putting previous presidents in jail <laughs> for corruption charges, and then the previous presidents get out of jail. Um, so I can't clarify that. I'm not sure anyone can clarify that. And I don't think that's the issue here. Okay. And yet the president says, you know, he is glad to have these investigations. Oh, by the way, his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, in jail right now right. because of money from Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, look, the everybody who got involved with Ukraine ends up in a mess. Let's face it. There's a lot of people um, who it's not Paul Manafort, the most uh, well-known, who got involved with Ukraine and probably regret it. Okay, because I suspect that after all the legal fees, they've even lost a lot of the money they made there. Um, this is a country that pays campaign consultants in cash. Okay, this is this is not a this is not a country that acts like Western democracies typically act. Now, it's it's difficult to do business there. It's they have had deep seated corruption problems for many many years. I I heard this when I was in Kiev, and I you know people generally know it. For us from this distance to be able to sort out who's a good guy and who's a bad guy there, I think is extremely difficult. But I think that fundamentally that is not the issue, okay? The issue is the use of the resources of the United States of America for personal political gain. If the president of the United States had tried to take $391 million and put it in his own campaign account, we would say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. Well, here he had $391 million in military aid to the Ukraine that he was withholding. And it was clear that he was withholding it until he could talk to President Zelensky and uh, make a little deal. And that, I think, is the issue, not who's corrupt in the Ukraine. But again, the president is saying this is about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and his corrupt son, I'm using his words, mm -hmm. by serving on a board in which he had no experience. Yeah, and that may be the case, right? That may be the case. But again, it's not the issue here. So how do people make sense of all of this? I think I think they have to separate out the two issues, okay? If believe me from Margaret Thatcher and all over the world, um the children of very famous people get to do all sorts of things. They get to be on boards where maybe they're not qualified. Uh, I suspect this can be said of the President Trump's own children and very many political children, okay? Whether the, I don't think that that's necessarily corrupt in the legal sense, but it does happen. It's obviously, um, it's obviously going after access to people in power. That happens all the time. That is a different kettle of fish than using the United States government to make a deal with a foreign leader that is to your own advantage. So let me bring it back to 
the start of our conversation. And as you know, where you stand often depends on where you sit. Sure. So during the last impeachment of a president, William Jefferson Clinton, there was this from Jerry Nadler, who is now the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Because he knew quite properly that an impeachment of a president is an undoing of a national election. And one of the reasons we all feel so angry about what they are doing is that they are ripping from us, they are ripping asunder our votes. They are telling us that our votes don't count. That from Democrat Jerry Nadler, now chair of the House Judiciary Committee and also a member of the House at the time, now the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Republican Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. People have been, not been cross-examined. Well, that's to come. And the Democratic Party recognized how serious this was to allow an inquiry to go forward. Now, the details were different. Their resolution had a seven-day, 17-day time period to do everything and make a report to our colleagues. That's just impractical. Our resolution followed what happened in Watergate. It was uh, not limited time, but Chairman Hyde has said he wants to do this, if he can, by the end of the year. That's a great goal to have. But the most important thing to remember is that the truth is not set by time, it's set by facts, and it takes some time to get to the facts. And it's not so much about how tired we are, because I know everybody out there is tired. It's about getting it right for the sake of history to justify a decision based on constitutional principles, based on sound law and good facts. And today was a huge step forward. Thank you very much. That from then-Congressman Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. The tables are turned. Yes, absolutely, the tables are turned. And in the case of the Clinton impeachment, uh, the impeachment went forward. It went forward with a full trial in the Senate, and the Senate voted to acquit the president. Now, the reason there was that they did not believe that President Clinton's wrongdoings, which were clear— Okay, and proven that his wrongdoings rose to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. In other words, the president wasn't using the power of his office in a way that was deemed untoward. He had lied. Absolutely. He had lied under oath. That was that was a serious problem. But he had lied about sex. And if you were to take everyone in the country who has lied about sex and put them in jail, you'd have a really, really, really big problem. And basically, in the end, people, it was, but he was brought to trial. And you got to remember that he did go to trial. Um, An impeachment only is an indictment. It doesn't mean that you're guilty. It means that then the Senate is going to look and see if they think you have violated your oath of office in any substantial way. So this is a hypothetical, but uh, the House proceeds with the impeachment inquiry, Right. votes to impeach President Donald Trump. What is the obligation of the Senate? The Senate then must hold a trial, okay? It doesn't have an option, okay? In fact, there's a time frame, and they put all other business aside. In other words, this is a privileged motion. It proceeds apace, right? And... If you will, the Clinton impeachment took exactly four months from votes on the articles of impeachment to the acquittal of the president in the Senate. So this will happen relatively quickly, is my guess, assuming that the House does go ahead and vote on articles of impeachment. One of the things the House will have to decide is how many articles to vote on. 
right? They could vote on emoluments, obstruction of justice, high crimes and misdemeanors, abuse of power, etc. They could vote on many or they could vote on one. I mean, at one point, I don't know if it's if, if this was said um, how seriously this had been thought, but at one point, Nancy Pelosi seemed to indicate that she thought only this Ukraine phone call should be the focus of impeachment. So maybe there'll be one article of impeachment, um, but in other impeachments, there have been many, and the House can the House can decide how many to send over to the Senate, and then when the Senate reviews them they can decide to convict on some and acquit on others. So it's a, the House um, is a an indictment and the Senate is the trial. I asked that because we remember what happened back in 2016 when Senator Mitch McConnell essentially blocked the nomination for nearly a year of a Supreme Court justice by then-Democrat Barack Obama. I do not believe he can do that with an impeachment trial because I believe that the impeachment is has some kind of privileged status in Senate rules and that it must go forward. So if you think that there will be some Senate Republicans who would be the Barry Goldwaters mm-hmm. and the Hugh Scott Republican of yeah. Pennsylvania who went down to the White House and told President Nixon essentially the jig is up, yeah, who do you look to? Well, I think the first person everyone's looking to is Mitt Romney. Um, Mitt Romney has two things that make him sort of logical. One is that he was the presidential, he was the nominee of the Republican Party in 2012. Uh, He is very respected. He is known as a kind of stand-up guy. Secondly, his state, Utah, is one of those very Republican states that's not crazy about President Trump. Uh, it's a very religious state. They, they, they've they never been crazy about Trump and his attitudes and history with women. Um, so I don't think he has any back home pressure necessarily to support the president. But mostly um, Mitt Romney Mitt Romney has the stature that should he choose to use it, he could in fact be the lead in the Senate in being very critical of the president and what he's done. So we'll see if he in fact steps into that role. I think after Mitt Romney, there are a couple other United States senators like Senator Burr, like Senator Sass, um, who could who have been critical of the president and the way he's conducted himself. And, and um, you could see perhaps them moving in the course of a trial. Um, you have some other senators like Murkowski, Senator Senator Murkowski and Senator Collins, um, who did defy the president on one of his signature votes that he lost, which was to repeal Obamacare. Um, So, you know, one by one, you might find some Republican senators abandoning the president. The problem is you need 20, okay? And I'm not sure that they could get 20, although there's an intriguing quote in yesterday's post from Mike Murphy, a Republican consultant, saying that if the vote were private, there would be 30 Republican senators to impeach this president. One of the things that's clear and has been clear from the beginning is that this president doesn't have friends in the way that most uh, presidents have deep-seated, long relationships. He was not in the Senate 
ever. He was not in the House of Representatives. He was not a governor. He doesn't have any deep relationships with other elected officials. And so, and that's the sort of thing that will help, frankly, in a situation like this. And this president has a cultish following among Republican primary voters that is sufficient to scare a lot of Republican elected officials into supporting him, but he doesn't have friends. And we'll see if uh, what happens. How do you think historians will view the period that we're in right now and the period we're about to embark on in the weeks ahead? Oh, I think this will be a major test of the Constitution. I think it's going to be a major test of the Constitution. It will be a major test of the separation of powers. Um, the, The Congress has, from time to time, defied this president. Uh, But this president, as he's stayed in office, has grown increasingly antagonistic towards the Congress itself. So this president has, you know, refused to hand over documents in situations that have been unprecedented. Um, And so I think that this will be one of those points where we will see if the Constitution holds up and we'll see if the separation of powers – continues to be a bedrock of our democracy. So this is an impossible question to answer, but if the founders were here today, do you think they would say this is exactly why we set up the system the way we did and the system needs to work? I think that's exactly what they would say. I mean, I've thought from the beginning that this president has tested the constitutional order in the United States more than any other president we've ever had. Um, Nixon possibly, but remember that Nixon had a full first term where he actually had some pretty good achievements and some some pretty great things happened. And then then he got, which in retrospect was sort of ridiculous given how popular he was, he got he got very paranoid in his reelect and and they went overboard, right? They did they engaged in a lot of illegal activities, the burglary at the Watergate just being the tip of the iceberg there. So um, I think that this president, with his autocratic tendencies, with his disregard for the separation of powers, with his disregard for history of the United States and our history with allies, et cetera, I think he has continually flouted uh, or I I think that he has continually flaunted the traditions of the American government. And I think this is exactly this process is exactly what the founding fathers anticipated was a president like him. So would you say that this is not uncharted territory, that there is a roadmap that we can follow moving ahead? Uh, there is a there or maybe is maybe a little bit of both. A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Um, obviously, whenever something happens in a new era, there's some there's new aspects to it. But let me just say that provisions of the to go all the way back to the first several presidents, right? You can see there are aspects of the Constitution that go to the question of foreign interference in American politics. Way back then, when they wrote the Emoluments Clause, when they wrote the Impeachment Clause into the Constitution, what was the big fear? The big fear was England and France 
interfering in the business of the new American Republic. And you had some people, the Thomas Jefferson's party, you had them more allied with the French, you had the Federalists more allied with the British, and but you had everyone worried that this nascent American public would be taken over by the politics and the interests of the big superpowers of that era, which were um, France and England, right? Not not the United States. So all these things have their roots in exactly what this phone call with the Ukrainian uh, president was about and exactly in the history of the Russian interference. We, from the very beginning, the founding fathers were worried about foreign interference in American elections and American government. That's why they wrote the things into the Constitution that they wrote. Today, we're the superpower, not France, not England. And we have an American president um, actively engaging a foreign power to interfere in our elections. And so let me conclude with my opening question. Where are we today? Well, I think where we are today is the House of Representatives is going to have to decide which articles of impeachment to write and to put to a vote in the House. Uh, do they do do they do five to ten covering the waterfront, or do they concentrate on one? Secondly, we're going to have to watch very carefully what the Republicans in the Senate do how they evaluate the articles of impeachment themselves, and then how they take in the information from the trial. Third, we'll have to uh, look at what where the American public is, okay? Because remember, each one of these, whenever there's a, well, let's see. finally, we're going to have to evaluate where the American public is. Remember that every time we have a major national crisis, it is a time of learning for people. If you're, you know, if you're a dentist in Cleveland, right? If you're, uh, you know, if you're an engineer out in California someplace, you don't spend your time thinking about the Constitution. You don't think spend your time thinking about emoluments. You know, maybe you had a class in high school or college. But so whenever we have one of these big crises, um, people learn things, okay? They Suddenly, they read the Constitution. They learn a little history. They're educated as to why, for instance, there are processes involved to monitor what presidents say to foreign leaders and why there are laws and traditions that prohibit self-dealing from, the, from a government position. So there's a learning to go on. So don't watch the polls right now. I mean, things will change over time as this process goes forward. And as the process goes forward, we will be checking in with you often. The book is titled Why Presidents Fail. Elaine Kmark, her work is available online at brookings.edu. We thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app and on the web at c-span.org. We thank you for listening.